0: Well, we are continuing our study in Genesis, um, and I'll, I'll state at the outf- outset of this sermon that it probably won't look like many sermons uh, that I've preached, and that I, I have to do a little bit of uh, labor in terms of explanation and teaching, um, and so I will apply as I go, but I just want to give you that a little bit of a heads up. As we continue in our study in Genesis, we're jumping in from studying just a couple verses to going into studying this big chunk. Uh, In your bulletins, I have it down through verse 25. I'm actually going to read all the way to chapter 2, verse 5, just to to give us a full scope of uh, the account of creation and the days of creation. Um, But I realize that I'm wading into deep uh, territory, difficult territory. Um, And I understand fully that... Sitting here, we have, may have differing views on how to interpret these verses. And that those interpretations we feel strongly about. Um, and so I'm going to go carefully. Um, and you may find yourself differing from some particular way in which I am interpreting the days of creation. But my hope is that we can see that I'm not pushing us away from God as creator, but towards him to worship Him, to recognize Him as the Creator King, and that I am committed to upholding God's Word. Committed to this. It's our foundation. After this, uh, I, I, I'm calling an audible. Um, after the sermon and during the adult Sunday school class, if you all want to stick around, I'm going to talk a little bit more in detail about some of the things that I address here in the sermon but gives us an opportunity to have dialogue, because I feel like after a sermon like this, it can be a little challenging not to be able to ask questions. And so we're going to do a little bit of a, um, an audible. Uh, we're not going to do our regular church history, but we're going to have a Q&A following the sermon. All right, with that, let's dive into the text. We're going to be reading Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 2, verse um, uh, 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed seed and fruit, trees bearing fruit in which there is, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and beheld it, and and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... This revelation of your created, of your creation, we thank you uh, that you made all things and that uh, we can come before you and you reveal to us the wonders of your work. Help us to see you and worship you, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I think it's helpful for us to begin our study of this account by recognizing that there are in fact varying views. Uh, varying interpretations of the first chapter of Genesis. In fact, there are many views, uh, lots of views, different ones, uh, some more sound than others. But for our purposes, I want to very briefly lay out four different views uh, that I think are based in sound exegesis. It doesn't mean I agree with all of them personally, but I think a reasonable Christian committed to God and to his word could hold any one of these views. And I say that at the outset, because some of you may not think there's only one position to hold, and that apart from that, there is no other valid position. But I want, I want to caution us, um, this isn't just Rob talking here. Uh, just from our, your own perspective, so you know that our denomination as a whole wrestled with this over the years. And back around 1999, they put out a paper stating these four views as within the boundaries of orthodox faith that any minister could hold to and still be ordained in the faith. Now, it doesn't mean that if you hold a view that's outside of this, you're not a Christian either. Um, I would would simply say that we're going to look at some of the boundaries and that to cross over those boundaries puts you in a precarious place as far as of interpretation of God's Word. But these four views, I think reasonable Christians good conscience and character who hold to God, believe in God, and trust his word can hold. So saying that at the outset, recognizing that we will differ, you and I, uh, that you might differ with one another, and that yet we can come together and worship the living God who created the heavens and the earth. So with that, I, I, I want to lay out those four views very briefly. You're going to ask so many more questions as I lay them out. And they may get stuck, and I, I want us to say, if you have those questions, you can hold on to them, and we'll come back to it in the Sunday school class where you'll be able to ask a little more detail, okay? So that's, a, that's a, maybe a way to keep you for Sunday school, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but there are, there are four, I, I think, views that are solid. Uh, the first view, and likely the most common view, historically, even probably today among Christians, is what we might call the literal six 24-hour day view. In summary, this view reads Genesis 1-2-3 to 2, 3, as revealing God's work of creation which happens in the span of six 24-hour days. That's, I think, without needing explanation. I think, uh, uh, coming to the text, this would not be hard. And I think it's a reasonable position. Um, I'm, I'm not going to Go into great detail right now, but I think it's a reasonable position, and I think it uh, we ought to talk about that later. If you think it's unreasonable, I want, I want to have a, a chat with you because I think it's very reasonable. In fact, Christians throughout the ages have hold, held that view. And so the second view, a view that has been held also throughout the ages, is uh, what we might call, and it comes in v- various forms, uh, what's called a day-age view. Uh, this view Rather than holding to six hour days, it holds to the idea that each day was an indeterminate length of time, taking its cue from the fact that Scripture often uses that word "day." Even here in the creation account, that word "day" is used in different ways, and so you'll see in chapter uh, two uh, it says uh, in in these uh, in verse four when it kind of gives this little little hymn, this little this little Uh, introduction, transition to the next section that says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, right? Word day there, it's talking about that broad day. We might see this in the New Testament when uh, we hear this language of the day of the Lord. Or in the Psalms, sometimes the psalmist will say something like, to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, or a thousand years is as a day. And so some take the view that these are periods of time, of indeterminate length. The third view, maybe a more recent view, though not too recent, applies uh, what you might describe as a literary analysis that sees the account as an analogy of a worker, namely God being the worker, going out into his field of labor, namely the universe, going out and working and creating and then returning and resting. You see this pattern of each day, worker going out to his workplace and then coming back uh, and then there being evening and morning and him resting uh, on that day, thus setting forth that week's cycle of work and rest culminating in the Sabbath day. So it's an analogy of that worker, the ancient Near East worker going out into his field, uh, coming back home, resting, going back out. We see this pattern now set for all of humankind. Right? So that view is called the analogical day view. The fourth view, also somewhat more recent view, is called framework view which focuses on the poetical devices used in Genesis 1 to establish a framework which highlights God as covenant king who creates dominions and kings who fill those little dominions and work and rule and reign. And then he crowns it with mankind who has dominion over all the beasts of the field. And then on the seventh day, you have... God himself, the king, establishing his royal rest, calling all to worship him. So that's the framework view, and we'll get into these, like I said, in the Sunday school class, and, and I'm going to um, touch on the various views a little bit throughout the sermon, but n- not too much, other than the last view, which is the view that I hold, and that may immediately cause you to sus- be suspicious of me, but I'll hold off on those <laughs> suspicions, um, before I, I do that, I think we need to lay some groundwork, some ground rules. First of all, none of these views inherently lead to undermining the authority of God's word or threaten the gospel. They don't inherently do that. None of these uh, people, of course, will always twist things, right? They'll twist scripture to their, own, to their own ends. But the views themselves don't necessitate that. Second, none of these views are anti-supernatural, Really important. Um, The text clearly teaches us that God created all things out of nothing by the power of his word. And God created each thing according to its kind, distinct. Mankind was created in the image of God and in, in that way was born out of the dust of the earth. Adam was shaped out of the dust of the earth. And Eve came from the side of Adam. Unique. And honestly, if you believe in the resurrection creation ain't no thing, right? We believe in the supernatural power of God. Finally, this is my third little groundwork here, let us move with charity towards one another, not with suspicion as believers in Christ. Though we may hold to different interpretations of Genesis 1, we I think as humans, we like clear lines, clear distinctions. You're either for us or you're against us. You're either in or you're out. But sometimes we come to these difficult passages in Scripture, um, they're more challenging to interpret, and we find that we need a little bit more grace, a little bit more charity, recognizing that two Christians with conviction and understanding and God's Spirit in them who holds the authority and Uh, infallibility of God's word may come out at different points. We wrestle together, but we love one another and we hold one another with charity. Let us be charitable. Okay, with those caveats and ground rules, I want to state my view up front. Uh, I told you already, but I'll state it again. Um, I cautiously hold the fourth option, uh, the framework view. In a minute, as we start to consider the text, uh, much of that view will kind of come out. Uh, the theology of it particularly will come out. Um, but the reason I find it compelling is threefold. First, I think it makes sense of the Hebrew language and structure of the text. If there's any, any question about what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to understand the text on its terms. And to me, it makes sense of the text. Now, you might say, but the 24-hour day makes sense of the text. And I say, yeah, they, they're, they're, it does. And, and I have to wrestle there and say, which is, which is more compelling? I, I tend to find this view more compelling. It doesn't mean there aren't other compelling or reasonable options. I'm just saying, I think the structure of the text lends itself to this view and the, and the, and the language. Second, I think it makes sense of the historical context within which the text was written. Uh, We'll get to that when we go through it. I think it highlights the greatness of God as creator. And it places mankind, as well as the rest of the creation, under his kingship. And notice on, on all these things, I didn't once mention the age of the earth or science. And it's not because I think those issues are unimportant. I don't think that's what the text is primarily teaching us. I think those are important things to wrestle with and Christians will have to wrestle with it because we have to engage with the world around us. We have to engage with people that are going to come with those questions and we have to be able to answer those things in reasonable ways. But as far as what we learn in the text as a, as a people, what the text is focusing on to me is the wonder of God as king and creator. And this is my, my singular big idea for today. It's quite simple. Behold your creator and king. Come and worship him. Say, behold your creator and king. Come and worship him. There's three things that I want to point out with the time remaining. Sorry, that was a long intro. I know that. First, behold the king's decrees. So, the thing that stands out to us in this text is... God speaking, and the world being created. You can't miss it. Last week, I mentioned the anticipation of the text as the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And I brought up the context. Israel on the border of the promised land as they're receiving all that Moses has written down, and they're being told this creation account. They're reading these words for the first time, maybe, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and I pointed out that this was a moment that the the Israelites would have sat and said, what's going to happen next? Why? Well, we know that in the destruction of Egypt by the plague, the power of God was manifest. The opening of the Red Sea, God's power was manifest. God speaking from Sinai, God's power is manifest. Provision from water provision of water from the rock or manna from heaven, God's power is manifest. Protection from God's enemies. Judgment for sin leading to the promised land. God's power is manifest, and in particular it's manifest in this this glory cloud, this theophonic presence, as the theologians like to say, this flame at night and this pillar of smoke and going forward before the people. Here is God hovering over the waters. The God who destroyed Egypt, led us through the Red Sea, redeemed us, chastised us, and is bringing us to rest in the promised land. What is this God going to do? And sure enough, in verse 3, something big happens. God speaks. The eternal word goes out. And the king's decree is made known. But here's a word like any other word in the world. Here the king says, let there be. In other words, that that little ver- verb, right, to be, that, that word to exist. He's saying, out of nothing, out of what does not previously be, what does not exist, let it exist. Create ex nihilo, out of nothing. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse that separates waters from above and below. God said, let the waters be gathered and let the dry ground appear and so on and so forth. And every declaration making the world out of nothing from what is very word. I think it's really hard for us to imagine what it's like uh, for our words to have power um, I sort of imagine a, a, a commander of a battalion saying to his soldiers, go forth to war, whatever that looks like. Think about the power that that commander has. It's, it's hard to even grasp my mind around that. As someone who spends my days talking, and I believe in the power of the word, as someone who preaches, I am someone who understands fully how weak and impotent our own words are. And it's interesting. We'll sit here. I'm not saying me preaching. It could be, I'm sitting, pretending I'm sitting with you and somebody's preaching. We might be moved or inspired by someone speaking in a moment. What happens about 10 minutes after the talk? You might still be thinking and mulling it over. What happens about a couple hours after the talk? Uh, You're thinking about food, you're thinking about hanging out with your friends. What happens about a day after? What happens about a month after? Do you even remember the topic of the talk? Do you even remember what conference you were at? Do you even remember where you were that day? <laughs> <laughs> our words are weak, aren't they? We read a book. We watch a documentary. We listen to a speech. We talk to friends. Think how hard it is for us to change our way of thinking or our behavior. Yet here, in an instant, in a moment, God speaks, and He doesn't just change behavior. He doesn't even just change our thoughts and our our heart, but He takes that what was not and makes it by the very power of His Word, all things. He makes everything. He makes us, and He makes hearts that beat. He makes us that love, and He does it all with a word. So when God thundered down his word from Sinai and gave to Israel the covenant, and now they're reading his word here, and the fact that God, by the power of his word, made all things, what else does it cause except awe and wonder? Who is a God like this? This is our God. And He's going with us into this promised land. And He's going to give it to us because by the very power of His Word, He makes things come into existence. How can He not bring about our rest in this land? Who is a God like this? Behold your Creator King. Wonder at His Word. Come and worship Him. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus... Is in fact that eternal word. The very beginning of the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things are made through that word. The Lord Jesus comes into the world, into the darkness, and he speaks to the wind and the waves, and what happens? They cease. He tells Lazarus to come out of the tomb, dead, stinking, rotting Lazarus. And what does he do? Comes out of the tomb. He says to us in his word, whoever believes in me shall never die. Those are words that bring life. The declaration of God. Behold your creator king. Wonder at his word. Come and worship him. Second, behold the king's dominions and rulers. One of the key components uh, of the framework view of the account of Genesis that makes some folks a bit uncomfortable is the idea that we're dealing with poetry. Even as I say that, some of you are squirming a little bit. I know it. First, I want to recognize A couple structural things about the text. First, do you see the word "and" that's thrown over and over again? And God said. And God said. And God did this. And God did that. Uh, That's a in the Hebrew. There's that's actually a little. It's almost like an indicator telling us what kind of text we're reading. In the Hebrew, it's saying, uh, "This is historical narrative. This is a historical account." And as we go through Genesis, though you won't necessarily see it so explicitly in the text, it's there. If we were to do a wooden translation of the Hebrew, you would notice it would be almost, almost annoying how often it comes up. If you did a bare translation, in this, in that, in this, oftentimes the, the writers will say, "And this happened, and this happened, while well, this was happening." They changed the, the the translation of it a little bit just to to help our English uh, ears, but it is the the the. Categorical way in which the Hebrew writers write historical narrative, and so at the very outset, I just want to say this: this is tip, this is typical of historical narrative. It is historical narrative. This is history. Genesis one is historical, all right? Yet, yet. The text also has some very uniquely Hebrew poetical forms as well. The text is repetitive. You can't help but see that either, right? Over and over again. The text repeats certain phrases. God said, let there be. It was so. There was evening and morning. God saw that it was good according to their kind. And on and on and on. The first day, the second day, we see this kind of repetition throughout uh, this Genesis 1 account. Not only is there repetition, very common of Hebrew poetry, but there's also parallelism. Parallelism is common in Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. Well, you have a statement, then you have another statement. It may be the same, it may be different, but, it, but it's in parallel in some fashion. Okay? Not only each day parallels in some fashion the previous day, but the days can actually be split up into two chunks Days 1 to 3, days 4 to 6. And then day 7 kind of sits on its own. We'll come to that. But days 1 to 3, days 4 to 6. So you can't help but see these parallels. And I want to draw out these parallels a, li- a little bit more, uh, just, just to give us a sense. You'll notice I'm talking about the dominions, the places where God's rulers are placed. In day 1, you have the creation, the, the fiat creation of light. Right, and darkness separated out, and they're given names, day and night. Now, fast forward to day four. Day one and day four. What is created on day four? Well, on day one, light is, light is distinguished. Light and darkness are distinguished. Day and night are distinguished, but there still are no f- forms. There's still no, no lights in the sky. And so in day four you have the creation of those lights, the sun and the moon and the stars to govern. Look here again, verse 16. And God made the two greater lights, the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. You notice that language of rule? It's as if God, the creator king, is setting up these domains or these dominions under himself where he puts his rulers under him. Not, They aren't equal to him in any way, but he says, this is your job. You're to govern this arena, this area, and to go no farther. Sun, you got the day. Moon, you got the night. Distinguished. Rule over it. Of course, he's the king upholding all these things. So we see these categories, and we'll we'll kind of touch on them as we go a little bit more. But I just want us to notice. So verse uh, verse or, or, or the second day, when God takes the waters and He separates them, so you have the waters above and the waters below. Think of the sea below and the and the, the 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 water above being like the clouds and the atmosphere and all of that that we see kind of swirling above our heads. God separates those out, and what does He do on day five? He takes the birds of the air and he puts them into the heavens and he takes the fish of the sea and he puts them into the waters and you have this idea of these these various days being the realm and the king now the fish and the birds are going to have somebody over them as well we'll see when we come to the creation of man setting itself as this crown of god's creation but i'm just highlighting for you the poetical structure so yes it's historical narrative yes this is how it happened this is God's working, declaring. This is the history of the creation of the earth. But we can't avoid these, poetic, po- these poetical devices in the text. And of course, day three, you have the separation of the waters. You have the ground, and the vegetation, all there, ready, so that when God comes to the sixth day, he puts the beasts of the field and all the things that squirm along the ground, and he takes man he sets them up as his image bearers there as kings over all those other creatures now that's a that's a very brief accounting and like I said in the Sunday school class uh, we can talk a little bit more about them but I do I just wanted to show you that kind of poetical parallelism and the the repetition of words and how this Genesis 1 stands out distinct from the rest of Genesis in the way that it's written. When we get into Genesis chapter 2, 5 and following, you'll notice that it kind of runs along the same sort of linguistic style as you might read 1 Kings or Samuel. It's very typical Hebrew poetry or Hebrew prose, Hebrew historical uh, uh, writings. But here in Genesis 1, there's this heightened, you might even say highly poetical, prose. Maybe that's a category. It is still history. And do we have any other examples of this in Scripture? Well, I would say yes. If we go to John chapter 1, I've already highlighted this. John chapter 1, you have that beautiful prologue in John, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You have that whole section all the way down to verse 18 that highlights this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second person in the tr- Trinity, who is the wor- eternal word of God, but who's come to earth as the light of the world and who's come to reveal himself and to bring light into the darkness. It's, it's this prologue. And yet it finds itself at the beginning of the historical narrative of the gospel accounts. And it's part of the gospel account. We wouldn't separate it out and say, this is not, this is not the gospel or this is not history, but it's This prologue, and in some similar fashion, I think Genesis 1 functions a little bit like that. It's history, but it has these other characteristics as well. It's highly theological, and it uses these poetical devices. So, as far as Genesis 1 is concerned, I think one way to think about it is as that poetic prose. It's history and poetry combined. So what? I just spent a long time explaining that. So what? Well, one thing that's highlighted for us, though its poetical structure, uh, through its poetical structure, is this idea of kingdoms and kings, right? So we have the filling of these these realms where these creatures and ultimately uh, uh, mankind will live. And I think that this is particularly important in the context of the ancient Near East world, in fact, the sun, the moon, the stars—those were things that all were very raw. Egyptian god, this is the sun god, probably one of the highest gods in Egyptian uh, mythology. A, a creator in and of himself. And it, what's interesting here in Genesis chapter one is God's saying, "I'm going to create light, and I'm going to create darkness, and the sun's not even going to come in until day four. He doesn't rule and reign." He's not ultimately the king. I'm the king, and he's going to be created out of nothing. I'm the one who rules the night and the day. But I'm going to set the sun and the moon and the stars in their place. They're going to be there as my emissaries to do my work, but they work according to me. I think we have two impulses. Scripture says that we are prone to worship the creature rather than the creator. And in that sort of move as rebellious sinners, one of the things, uh, I think we have two impulses. One is to make the things of the world, the material world, uh, greater and godlike, or we make ourselves greater and godlike, or some combination of both. We swing back and forth between, oh, we're ruled by the world and all the the laws of physics, and we have no hope. It is just fate and fear all the time. We, we vacillate between that and I'm in control. I can manipulate the world. The world is at my beck and call. Uh, I'm grateful to, to Rome. Uh, he uh, he enlightened me to something I I wasn't quite aware of, but aware of in, in sort of culture today, in the sort of larger cultural world, and this is the idea of manifesting. Uh, maybe you've Heard this idea, of, like, if I just think something and say something long enough, I can manifest it in my life. That could be a material goods, that could be blessings, that could be anything. If I just say it enough and think it enough, I can make it happen. Just think about that. What is God saying? He's saying, I speak, I manifest. You are a creature in this world. But I think we're prone to this. To to either fearing all the, 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 the mother nature and all the fatalistic powers of the world, we fear it and we're we're at odds with it, or we think maybe I can just control it and I'm gonna I can trust in myself. Um I I'm not against technology. Sometimes I want to be, but truth is I'm dependent upon it. But I do think our our impulse to think we can just fix that with a little bit of technology. If we just if we just come up with a solution, we can fix the problems of the world. I think it was Isaac who was telling me the other day that, you know, there is a, there's a belief that in the not-too-distant future, we will have fixed the problem of aging. Is that not the definition of being God? To say, I can create and sustain myself. I don't need the Creator. I can become infinite and eternal just like you just through my technology. The other day I was listening uh, to the radio and it was talking, they were, they were discussing how our, our cell phones uh, are, are like a second brain, right? And, and in some ways they really are like my second brain, right? Uh, my calendar's on there, all my knowledge. Uh, but there's this sense in which we can control the world around us. And God is saying, no, I am the creator. I made things. And they have their realms. And they have their place. They're made orderly. Not chaotic. But with goodness. Notice a few things about, about the language here throughout. I, I just want to want to highlight that, that there's distinction. And we saw this uh, in one of our readings today. In particular, I wanted to highlight um, uh, from... I think it was in It's in your bulletin. I'm going to miss it. I just I noticed how the word how the language of creation was utilized. Uh Hebrews eleven three. Go ahead and read it for me. The that the is the oh, so that what was seen is not made out of things that are visible. Yes, that. But there was another one where it talked about specifically uh, this idea of the created order. Um, uh, all right, it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave it on the on the table. I was just as we were worshiping, I was noticing it. Um, but it but it 's orderly it 's not chaotic, and each thing is given specific realms and rule this far and no farther that 's the language of the job right like i've set the i 've set the path it will go this far and no farther it 's a sphere of dominion and rule there 's differentiation each thing given its uh, distinct role and, and purpose in the created order. Birds, you're going you're to fly here. Fish, you're going to swim here. Sky, you're going to be there. Earth, you're going to be here. Water, the waves, I think that was the language of Job. I told the waves they could crash this far and no farther. They had a stopping point, even the mighty waves. Distinction, differentiation, roles, rules. And he's speaking to us. And he's saying to us, know your place and don't fear for I am with you, the God who made the heavens and the earth and I have given you glory, right? We have the image bearing and domain of mankind. I've given you purpose, given you dominion. I've differentiated you from the animals. He's saying to man, he's saying to us, we go around our days with such anxiety or with such desire to control, and he's saying, just stop. Just, Just take a moment and slow down and recognize that I am the creator king, that I uphold all these things by the power of my hand, my word. There's nothing that is outside my control. So what does that mean for you and I? As we come to this moment and we see God as the creator, differentiating, giving rules, putting things in their place, what does it mean for us when we face the the chaos that's around us? What what do we say about the chaos? Well, Lord, you you said you made things orderly. Why is there chaos in my life? Why is there chaos in creation? Why are there pandemics and tsunamis and, and fires and floods and Droughts, why all these things? Well, we'll get to that in chapter 3. <laughs> As we come to recognize that part of the effects of the fall are the sort of breaking down of the goodness of God's creation because of our rebellion and sin. Nevertheless, as God says, I'm, I'm coming into this world to restore it and renew it and transform it. And so even though you break the world down by your rebellion and sin, I'm going to remake the world. I'm going to make it new. And so as we come to the Creator King, we can say, Lord, I don't understand your purposes in allowing such chaos around me. But I know that you have it all in the palm of your hand. There is. Nothing I have to worry about. How many of us go to bed at night with all the worries and anxieties of the world hanging on us? Thinking about every little detail that we don't have in our control. A text like this says, come and rest in me. There is evening and there is morning. There is a space of time where you can go to sleep. And while you are sleeping, I'm still in control. This brings me to my final point and conclusion. We're going to talk a lot more about image-bearing in the weeks to come, so I'm kind of jumping over that a little bit. But I just want to highlight the seventh day. Just as we think about this picture of creation, we have God's work and setting himself up as the great king and putting these places of, of rule in these various Little kings under the sun, the moon, the stars, the fish, the birds, all the, the creatures that move along the ground, and man as the crown of his creation even over those creatures. We see all that work that's going on and the work that those creation have to do. The, the sun has to rule. The, the birds of the air have to fly. The, the, the fish in the sea have to swim. The, the bugs on the ground have to do their thing. Sorry, Liza they got to do their thing. But we come to the seventh day, and God rests from all his labor and his work. And it's this odd thing, because why in the world would God need to rest? What, there is no, there's no power that's missing from God. He isn't struggling. And yet, he comes to this moment where he says, I'm done, I'm complete, I've done everything that I need to do in terms of the creation commands, that, that, that fiat, that declaration of the king. There's nothing left for me to do. So he rests. And to me, this is the most beautiful picture. And we're going to look at this as well, so I don't want to to touch on it too much right now. But just this idea that God would make a day as the king and creator set aside for himself. And that sounds selfish, but it's a day in which creation is to worship him. But in that worship of God, as we come together, even now on a Sabbath day and rest under the umbrella of God's kingship, as we come into this place, what we're saying is, God, you are the creator. I'm your creature. I am utterly dependent on you. There is nothing that I have that is not yours. Help me. Give me strength for my work. Help me to walk out of here on Monday, you know, tomorrow, and to do the labor that you've set before me, but help me to rest knowing that you have given me the mind, the heart, the will, the power to do the work that you've set before me. Our problem, of course, is that that we we don't want to rest in God. We want to rebel against Him, going back to Romans 1. We want to exchange... God for the things of this world and worship the creature. And God said, I know your weakness. I know your sin. I know your proclivities. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my one and only son. And he's going to go into the world, into the darkness, and he's going to be the light. And he's going to offer himself to you and say, come all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, what a, what a joy we have to come under the umbrella of God's kingship and to come into the presence of the King who loved us, has provided for us, and has given us rest in Jesus. And even as we struggle each day to do the tasks set before us, we can be reminded there's a day when we will rest in glory look forward to that day but let's pray